Welcome to Policy Matters. We're Matt Dixon and Franz Buscher, and today we're going to be talking about the labour market for young workers. Joining us to talk about this is Professor Paul Gregg from the University of Bath. He's a professor of economics and social policy. Paul, thank you very much for being here. So in previous programs, we've talked a lot about social mobility, um, where we're going in the UK. We've also talked about the role of education and social mobility. We're, we're hoping today that we could look at sort of the next stage and explore how young people today enter the labor market and what their experiences are and how they differ perhaps the previous uh, generations. So you're somebody who's done a lot of work. You have an impressive CV on this. You've done a lot of work on uh, childhood poverty, social mobility, inequality, welfare. Uh, In fact, your book, UK Labor Market in the Winter, is on my required reading list for my teaching. I looked at one of the Amazon reviews the other day, actually, and um, <laughs> apparently uh, when you buy your book, uh, people are sent a copy of the Canterbury Tales. So Amazon obviously has you stacked next to Chaucer, <laughs> which must be a compliment. <laughs> so I guess one of the questions I have to you sort of to open this up, if we look at some raw statistics, such as employment statistics, employment is at an all-time high. UK unemployment is extremely low. The last time unemployment was this low was, I checked it, in 1975. So young people are leaving school today with more and more education. The proportion of people in need, not in education, employment or training, is at an all-time low. I guess my question to you, what's the problem for young people today and why are they complaining so much? So the kind of the problem changes with each generation. So if you roll back to the 1970s, it was high inflation. The 80s and 90s, it was mass unemployment, and young people were experiencing that disproportionately. You know, uh, people facing 20, 25% unemployment amongst the young. Um, what's been happening in the last sort of decade, or perhaps a little bit longer, is that we've had this great wage stagnation. It used to be the case that each generation would be expecting to be earning more than the previous generation at the same age. And that has stopped for the first time since uh, since the beginning of the 20th century. So we used to have this kind of 20th century offer that each generation saw living standards rise on the previous one. And for the first time that has now stalled and that young people are not progressing through the labour market as rapidly as previous generations would have done. So that ties in a little bit with some of the social mobility stuff that we've talked about in previous programmes. It used to be kind of automatic, as you say, that younger generations would almost automatically do better than uh, their parents' generation, living standards were rising. That seems to have, as you say, that's no longer the case. We can no longer take that for granted. And I think you've done quite a lot of work on the kind of post-financial crisis of the last decade. And young people in particular, everyone seems to have had wage stagnation, but young people in particular have borne the brunt, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been the worst decade for wages since 1860, according to the Bank of England. Um, you know, here we are, 2018, and wages are still below where they were before the crash in 2008. So that's the general story. But in addition to that, there's a kind of a youth story. What we sort of normally see is that each year or each five years, people's living standards are higher at the same kind of age. For generations up to 19, born in 1978, that was the story, okay, that you you were earning a little bit more than the people a year before, two years before, five years before. For generations born since 1978, or let's call it 1980, that has stopped and actually gone slightly into reverse so that they are behind, if you like, five years ago, behind 10 years ago. It's about sort of 15, 17 years 
backwards in history, if you like, and that's the problem for young people. And it's compounded by other other things too, that the jobs that young people are doing are in lower paid occupations at the same ages, particularly occupations where you don't expect to progress as rapidly as you age. So, you know, the, the kind of high tech professional services where you get big earnings rises as you as you sort of age through the labor market, gain experience, promotions and that kind of stuff. It, young people are being are not as heavily in those kind of occupations. They're in, in lower status occupations. Uh, and it's been mentioned that, you know, that the zero hours contracts, self-employment, atypical forms of employment, low security is also a feature of the of the youth labor market in particular. So it's not just wages, it's part-time working, it's atypical type contracts, working later in your life than used to be the case. People normally age out of these things, right? That you start in relatively insecure, low-paid employment, in retail or what have you, and then you progress. And that kind of story of progression as you age is what seems to have gone slightly wrong, is that the youngest generations are not progressing as rapidly up the age earnings profile, as we call it, as previous generations. And that's the case for uh, all young people. So is there any kind of graduates are somehow escaping this or they're still suffering the same? No, it's not. It's not focused uh, particularly by education. I mean, graduate people earn more than non-graduates, but they're not earning more than graduates did 15 years ago. Um, And so it's it's a general story across education groups. Uh, it's slightly worse for men than it is for women. The sort of the gender pay gap, the gap between in earnings between men and women is ageing up slightly. So, you know, always used to be the case that the big age earnings, the big gaps in earnings between men and women really opened up in the childbearing years, sort of after 28. That's sort of moving up a little bit. It's happening a little bit later because men, in a sense, are a little bit more delayed, if you like, in that kind of sense. There's one other sort of slight twist, which is at the bottom end of the labour market in the kind of relatively you know, low-paid sectors. Uh, we're seeing a big increase in part-time working amongst men, which is a new, new phenomenon. I mean, it's part-time working amongst women has been common for a very long time. But we've had this bit of a growth of, of part-time working uh, amongst men. So the sort of the general story is that we used to think of kind of issues like social mobility as about relative life chances across groups, you know, the people who are better educated or less well educated. And we didn't sort of worry too much about how generations were doing relative to previous generations because they were always doing better. It was a kind of a, a given. It was a sort of a safe bet. And that's why it's that's why it's interesting. That's why it's important is that, that for the first time, we're not seeing generations progressing on the past. And so we're wanting to understand why it's happening and whether it's going to persist or is it just a post-crisis kind of story? Is it something which is going to be the, the new normal? Or is it something which is this isn't this was an, an aberrant period? I mean, we are ten years past the crisis now, which is quite a substantial amount of time. Let me ask you something. Sort of going back to the academic literature in the past, there was the story about skill bias, technological change, which was sort of one of the explanation why inequality was rising during the seventies and eighties and, uh, and the nineties. Um, about fifteen years ago, David Alter proposed this idea of task bias, technological change. This idea that there's a hollowing out of jobs. To put it in layman terms, you know, uh, you either end up with some sort of Deliveroo-type job or a high-level computer, uh, artificial intelligence engineering, and everything else is sort of automated uh, by these new advances in technology. Do you think 
this is not a recession issue, but actually a fundamental shift in how technology affects the workplace and also therefore affects young people. So sort of through the 90s and uh, the early 2000s, we were definitely seeing job creation at the sort of the top and the bottom and the kind of the more routine manufacturing jobs, relatively well-paying administrative secretarial jobs for sort of middle-educated or slightly lower, uh, but decently paid were the jobs which were disappearing and the growth was kind of in the tails of the services, the personal services and the professional and technical and managerial type occupations. Actually, in the last sort of decade, and we've had big jobs growth in the last decade, I mean, this has been, this is the other kind of key feature is lots of job creation is the job creation is now happening pretty much across the top half of the distribution yeah so it isn't sort of just it's not the middle that's disappearing now it's it's lower than that yeah it's around the sort of about a quarter of the way up rather than halfway up is where the jobs are disappearing and the job creation is a little bit right at the very bottom but the bulk of it is we are doing lots of job creation of relatively high paying occupations technical, professional kind of occupations, which sort of makes the paradox that pay isn't rising even more stark, yeah? So we're creating what we would consider to have been, you know, good jobs as of the past. We're doing that and we're doing it in spades. Um, but what we aren't doing is generating pay rises at the same time. Now, the big sort of debate at the moment, which is kind of raging, is whether the next generation of technology will be focused in different types of jobs than in the past. Yeah, that it's moving up the educational spectrum and it's going to start displacing some law functions, some basic medical surgeries, um, you know, lots of other kinds of non-routine jobs uh, and relatively well-skilled jobs. And so there are lots of people talking about tech in that kind of future. This is where it's going to be going on. To date, that there's no real evidence that started. Yeah, this is all speculation about the future. Yeah, and... What will decide this is how expensive it is to create the technology to displace certain types of job functions and how costly those job functions are currently. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if the, if the labor is really cheap, you aren't going to spend huge amounts of money trying to design computers to end it because it, there's no need. Yeah. Um, and so there is an incentive, if you like, to try and move the computers into spaces which are currently occupied by well-paid, expensive labor, because that's where the savings are. As long as you can do it reasonably cost-effectively, you can design the computers to do it. So there's a lot of people speculating that's maybe where we're going. But as of to date, we haven't really sort of seen that. The jobs which are shrinking at the moment, the occupations which are shrinking, are pretty much the same occupations that have been shrinking for a while, except retail. Retail's the new one, right? You know, we're all going online to buy stuff. We're not buying it in shops anymore. You know, but on the other side, the big job growth area is health and social care because of an aging population. So which isn't, you know, particularly different kinds of workers. They're just different kinds of jobs. He's hoping that uh, they don't invent a machine to get rid of academics uh, just yet. But um, I guess we've talked previously about education and how more young people are going to university. And as more jobs are created in, in higher skilled areas, that's that's good. Still, you know, more than 50% of young people don't go into higher education. People remain in training maybe to 18. So what are the kind of education routes and the options for people who aren't going the traditional academic route? Uh, There's huge numbers of of young people every year. Um, What's the kind of prospects for them and then that transition into this evolving labour market? 
Yeah, I mean, the the route for people doing A-levels, university, going on the jobs milk round and finding occupa- uh, finding jobs in, in relatively well-paid firms and so on is a easily signposted kind of route. It's kind of obvious to people. Schools know about it. They know how to produce it. Universities know about it. They know how to signpost it. And so you've got these kind of big, big signposts saying this route produces these kinds of outcomes and and that's all sort of very clear and very well understood if you're not going down that route there are no clear signposts it's messy yeah there's lots of different qualifications there's lots of different pathways that you might take apprenticeships which have been a big push recently are still not really picking up at uh, you know in the age group 16 to 19 20 the big growth has been slightly older ages people who are already in jobs if you like then getting qualified in those occupations and those jobs rather than sort of an educational training route uh, so so we are sort of still in a zone where if you're not doing the university route people are having to try and find their own way without a lot of signposting without a lot of clear careers guidance and so on and it's pretty messy the Governments regularly seem to have the statement, we've got a once in a generational chance to reform apprenticeships, to reform technical qualifications, and uh, five years later we have another once in a generational chance to reform this kind of process without actually feeling like we're making transformational gains. So young people are not going down those routes. It's relatively poorly signposted. The Higher levels of these technical qualifications, level threes and four apprenticeships, are uh, well paid uh, for people going into them. There aren't always clear pathways. People rarely go level two, level three, level four. That kind of sort of ladder, if you like, tends not to be there. People sign up to different courses. But there are lots of people who fall off, and that's what sort of perhaps needs to be stressed about this kind of period, is there's lots of people. So we've pushed up the school leaving age effectively to sort of 18 but lots of people at 19 are not doing anything they're not in education or work or training uh they then tend to sort of work their way into things by sort of 24 25 but we have this kind of lost period still where people ought to be gaining skills qualifications and experience crucially in work in the way that we would sort of normally think of what young people should be doing but there are too many still who are not following regular clear pathways who are moving in and out of work relatively unstable jobs uh, short periods of worklessness etc etc and we know that those people tend to have very poor prospects in terms of future earnings they are the people who will tend to be low paid in the future they are the people who will tend to be out of work more often in the future getting into stable secure decently paid employment needs to be sort of cemented almost uh, in that kind of period before 25 rather than just sort of picked up later do you think there's ever a chance of this potential second pathway into employment working out i mean I remember reading literature from before I was born where people were arguing that uh, the apprenticeship system in the UK doesn't really work, the whole FE system is a mess, there's this old argument of a low skills equilibrium, uh, this continuous comparison to Germany where the duality system kind of works. Is this a cultural phenomenon that this just can't be fixed or is just every single government yeah. failed to really deliver? I mean, sort of out there, if you like, is the Northern European model, you know, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Holland, Scandinavia, with 
if you like, clear uh, progression routes either into a higher education or into technical uh, apprenticeship type qualifications. Uh, you know, employers heavily engaged in running those kind of programs, the employers being, if you like, not the government, it's employers who really run the apprentice type systems uh, in those countries. And that is our weakness, in a sense. I wouldn't call it cultural. I'd call it we don't have collective employer organizations who take control of running these kinds of sectors and these, these, these qualifications and making sure that their members are engaged and in, in some kind of practical way. So it's, it is a government failure in the sense that we haven't, we haven't broken through in this kind of space, but actually the real weakness is, is a lack of employer coordination. Yeah? So we don't have sectors, construction being an obvious one, where there really ought to be sector-led you know, by the big firms, delivery of two scale numbers of construction uh, skilled workers. Rather, we rely on importing it from across the rest of Europe. You know, in a sense, that's our weakness and that we've never really tried to force employers to engage. Now, the apprenticeship levy is the first serious attempt at that since the late 1970s. But as of to date, it hasn't yet really, the apprenticeship levy hasn't worked in creating a, if you like, a second pathway out of school. What it's doing is picking up people somewhat later who are already in work and in those jobs and those occupations and giving them the qualifications appropriate to what they're doing. But it isn't a pathway as such as yet. And that still still remains our kind of deep-seated problem. Feels a bit like you say it's kind of a the model of capitalism that we're running that's different. So in Germany and they talk about that coordinated market economy style, whereas we're much more kind of hands off, government much more um, laissez faire, let the market kind of sort things out. But you're right, the government is doing a few things like the apprenticeship levy, and one area in where in which they are getting more involved or, or have done for kind of recent decade or so is the minimum wage. So uh, we've had. A, a minimum wage since uh, 1998 and so far against the predictions of some people beforehand that there would be lost job losses as a result of minimum wage is kind of classic prediction as it's turned out that hasn't been the case but that may be because it's been set at a, a level so it's not too strong a, uh, a bite on the labor market but recently we've had the national living wage introduced and that really is uh, a big increase in pay at the bottom end, affecting millions of workers. So that's only recently come in. Is this something you expect to now see that we will have a kind of an employment response? We've seen employment's been very, very strong. Is this something we should be worried about? So, so the sort of key feature of the last decade has been we are jobs rich. You know, we've got record employment, low unemployment, but this kind of wage stagnation. And George Osborne, when he was chancellor, was pretty quick in working out that the post-recession problem was not jobs, it was wages. Yeah? And, and the living wage, the national living wage, was his response to that. And in many ways, he was ahead of the economists who were still sort of worried about massive job losses and so on post kind of big recessions. Um, so he was very early in a sense of recognising that Britain's problem had shifted. It had shifted away from jobs and job creation towards wages and wage progression. And the living wage, national living wage, was his solution to that. 
only one country has got minimum wages as high as where we're going. We're not quite there yet. It's 2020 when we sort of get there at 60% of the typical wage being the minimum wage. France is the only country that, that's that high, yeah. So we really are moving into pretty uncharted territory. And the idea that we would be having sort of labor market regulation on the kind of power with, with France is from a conservative government is kind of uh, surprising. So, I mean, it has a number of, you know, a number of implications. So one is about sort of jobs, numbers of jobs, in the, particularly in the low-paying sectors. As we've sort of discussed, it doesn't seem to be a, that's not the problem. We could take some slowing down of jobs growth for the sake of some pay growth. I think that would be, you know, a public policy improvement. Um, but it's not problem free. If you've got, as we are going towards, about 20% of the workforce on one wage, which is being set by government, not by firms or any other kind of pressures within the labour market, it becomes distortionary. Yeah, The incentive to get promotion, yeah, to take on more responsibility, becomes squeezed as the kind of wage compression happens over the bottom part of the wage distribution. There's going to be parts of the country, rural mid-Wales, which is the lowest part paid part of the country, where something like approaching 50% of the workforce will be on the minimum wage. Yeah, this is not problem free, right? So it's a response to a problem. Our problem is wages aren't growing. It has some sense to it, providing a bottom floor there to try and you know to tackle wage inequality, to keep work incentives strong, to, in a sense, reduce some of the costs of the wage bill of supporting uh, low, uh, low incomes, um, through tax credits and so on. However, we are pushing into territory we really haven't seen before. And we are creating a system which is, in a sense, creating additional problems for firms operating. In other words, it's very much a second best solution. It would be better if wages were organically rising across for all people, rather than, in a sense, it requiring government push and push focused at the bottom of the distribution. So we kind of need to have the conversation as about, in a sense, what else can we do to get wages moving? Because in a sense, relying just on that is kind of becomes worrying. The further you go, there has to be a point which this becomes a problem, not a solution. OK, so we have to be talking about what is it that's kind of restraining or, or restricting wage growth. Um, we are in interesting territory with falling unemployment, but it's not yet stimulating wage growth. We've had alongside the decade stagnation in wages, a decade stagnation in productivity. You know, the technical industrial revolution kind of sense of firms improving efficiency and that efficiency gaining on each generation and that leading to rising living standards has stalled almost. We are kind of at a snail's kind of pace. Yeah. So why is it that we aren't generating, you know, particularly when we're talking about the kind of technical kind of innovations that's going on in other conversations, why is it that we aren't any longer moving towards improving the effectiveness of what workers are doing so that living standards can rise because we're producing more with the same labour. And that has been the history of the Industrial Revolution, but it's a process which is pretty much stalled. And that is kind of deeply worrying. And, and really, you know, I think that the order of magnitude just really needs to be said that, you know, this is, we haven't seen this since, you know, since Victoria was on the throne. We haven't seen this since probably George III was on the throne. This is kind of really unusual and really needs some kind of sense of, of what it is and what we can do about it, because it really is uncharted territory. Why do you think, um, I mean, that, that that's quite a 
significant statement you made right there, right? Putting it into this huge historical perspective. Where do you think government policy or even sort of future research should take us on this on, the, on this issue? It sounds to me like, you know, the old mantra is more education, more education. That will fix the problem. That will allow people to, you know, uh, uh, interact with these new technologies which are coming. And, you know, that will increase productivity. It sounds to me like that isn't going to work. And if it's not education, then what is it? So, so, yeah, so the first conversation we tend to have is there's sort of a, a race of demand for more skilled labor going on, and we've got to balance that with an increase in supply and produce labor with the kind of technical knowledge and so on to use the new technologies, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of fine, uh, and it's not untrue, and it's still valuable. But what we have sort of seen is the, is the, the, the value of, of continued education. I mean, young people are the best educated we've ever produced, but they aren't the best paid we've ever produced, right? So something is sort of disconnect has got there. Uh, as far as we know, and, and you know, this is kind of uh, very much work in progress, is that um, uh, productivity is stalled because firms are choosing not to invest uh, in the same way. I mean, the levels of investment that firms are doing about the kind of levels we used to have in the media post-war period in the 1950s when there was a general shortage of capital. So firms aren't investing. So there are new technologies, but firms aren't investing them. There's also questions as to where whether it's diffusing across firms rapidly enough from the kind of high-tech and leading firms. We used to have various industries which we were really good at, which were relatively highly productive and very much in demand, finance being one of them. Uh, we are seem to be in a situation now is that our kind of comparative advantage sectors are not the ones which are the engines of growth across the developed world at the moment. And that's causing us problems, right? Because they have been the past engines of our growth and our productivity improvements, and they aren't where the action is right now. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, maybe it means we need to start growing some new sectors and thinking about those. That's what the industrial strategy the government's talking about is. And it may be, in a sense, trying to, to boost demand again in those kind of areas which have been historically our success stories. Um, but at the moment, the narrative feels insufficient to be engaging with the extent of the nature of the problem. Yeah, That we are in a space where something really unusual is happening, that we are in this kind of relatively stagnant period of living standards, wages, productivity. And as yet, we haven't seen a coherent response from policymakers to say, yes, we know what the problem is, and here is how we're going to address it. It's kind of bits at the moment. It's not coherent, and it's not to scale. Well, thanks, Paul. Um, you've given us a lot of things to think about there uh, and a lot of food for thought. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us today. I'm Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Buscher. And you've been listening to Policy Matters. We'll be back soon with more.